to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast with the Caspian Post, with me, Mark Elliott. So, welcome once again to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today, our wonderful guest is Shahida Tulanganova. I do hope I've said that right. Um, uh, not right. Tulanganova. Tulan. Oh, okay. Say it again. Don't I- even try. Don't even try. Shahida Tulanganova. Tulaganova. Okay, so I stress the over. Uh, Shahida Tulaganova. Oh, look at me. Can't, I, can't <laughs> I told even you start. not to try. <laughs> and um, Shahida, which makes it easier for me, uh, has a, an absolutely glittering career. 20 years or more um, as a journalist and as a director of films, um, working with the BBC, working with goodness knows. I mean, I've, I've looked at some of the films that you'd worked on from Donetsk uh, about the airport. You'd um, written recently about the Rohingya in in... in well, I, I tend to still call it Burma. Do you still say Myanmar? Most about people, fake. Most people do call it Burma, yeah. Yeah, fake passports around Europe. I, I, well, it's an unbelievable series of things, and I really would suggest that you uh, seek her out. But, but what we're interested particularly for our Caspian podcast is um, the, the fact that you are an init- originally Uzbek, and, and we're very interested that you've re- reported a great deal uh, from Central Asia, and yet you were telling me that you haven't actually been allowed to go back or dared to go back to Uzbekistan for something like 17 years. Now, how, how much of that have I got right? <laughs> you got everything right, except that I don't like when people call me originally Uzbek. I am Uzbek. <laughs> I'm originally so sorry. or not <laughs> i am Uzbek. i just happened to live abroad for a long time now i i i know that um since the death of uh, islam karimov there have been or it there appear for for an outsider to have been large changes in uzbekistan do you see a great deal of progress there or is it still difficult for you to return and could you perhaps fill in for us why you had to leave um right um um Ever since Islam Karimov died, and ever since the power changed uh, in 2016, there were there were changes in Uzbekistan. And I would say from outside point of view, there was serious changes because the, I can see openness, more openness as to compare mm. before. Islam Karimov's era, his last years in power, to me is like during the Soviet time Brezhnev's era. It's total zastoy. It was the most horrible time in Uzbekistan dictatorship, where people were vanished, there was on-scale persecution, and um, the whole, um, over the whole country, there was a reign of the KGB, no matter how it's called, National Security Council, whatever, KGB was everywhere. What Mirziyoyev did, he reformed the KGB, thanks to God, you know, it's not that fearsome. There is a lot more openness, people started talking. Uh, there are some reforms happening. But it's a long, long way to go to establish what anyone would want to establish. But I want to stress out there's a huge difference between the Mm. previous regime and the current regime. As far as political opposition is concerned, and I have to say I'm not, I've never been part of opposition. I've been always a journalist and maybe a civil activist when it's needed. Um, Unfortunately, I still have to test the waters. I was told that I still am not kind of welcomed back home through variety of my sources, but I want to test the ground. I want to see how far they can go. Do you want to jail me or not? 
And my claim to fame in Uzbekistan is that, yes, on top of my career being a journalist who was trying to expose things, I was the only one who actually managed to get inside Andijan in 2005 uh, when the massacre mm. happened and over a thousand people were, you know, murdered, basically shot dead that night, May 13th, 2005. I was one of the very few people who managed to get in the city and try to report about it and it went on bbc news the crime unforgivable of course from the uzbek government point of view i yes i illegally crossed the border to to do it that was my journalistic duty i mean our job is to get the story out right no matter how you do it so i had to cross the border illegally and uh in 2007 in southern kyrgyzstan the city of osh my very good friend and colleague, Alisher Saibov, was murdered, assassinated. Um, and I was um, charged with um, try attempt to change the constitution, overthrow the constitutional regime in Uzbekistan. You, you, uh, you, for, for, for your journalistic activities, you were accused of trying to change the constitution? Yeah. And I always think, wow, they really think big of me. I'm <laughs> 155 centimeters of height. I really cannot change any constitutional <laughs> or unconstitutional regime on my own. But if they think I'm so important, <laughs> kudos to me. <laughs> well, um, just for people that don't know what happened at the Andijan massacre, could in, in just in a couple of sentences, what what was the issue and, and um, are the the issues behind that solved or are they still relevant? Well, um, the massacre happened uh, on the May 13th, 2005. Prior to that, uh, Uzbek government uh, arrested several um, businessmen who were part of the community. And Uzbekistan is a community-based, city-based country. It's not like unanimous type thing. So they arrested uh, several businessmen who were actually feeding the whole city, pr providing with jobs and etc., accusing them of a variety of things, including um, extremism and etc. etc. In fact, uh, from my point of view, making an investigation to this thing, it happened that they just wanted to overtake their businesses, which were quite successful, which is a norm in mm. Uzbekistan. Uh, however, people didn't tolerate, and uh, there was uprising. Uprising happened, uh, somebody stormed the army base, somebody released the prisoners, and people gathered on the square. People didn't want to get away, and the government did what they had to do. They were mm. shooting everyone. They, they brought um, armored vehicles, um, snipers, and etc. against the peaceful crowd. And as a result, without within four or five hours, they shot over a thousand people in one Good night. Uh, no. Those who were trying to escape, and I always say thank you to government of Kyrgyzstan, they opened the borders. Andijan is virtually half an hour drive from Kyrgyzstan, which is the next neighboring country. The, opens, the borders were open and they let our refugees in and they, you know, they saved lives. What happened afterwards was even worse because the government had uh, their cameras in the city. They were trying to uh, get anyone who was part of the uprising or who was part of the crowd, no matter what. So I suspect that a lot of people were dead, were killed after the massacre. Oh, I see. You know, in detention mm. centers. Unfortunately, so many years on, no one was persecuted. 
no one was punished. And even the new government of President Merzioyev is saying that we will do something. Nothing has been done. Why? Because the same people who are in the government now, and President Merzioyev was a first prime minister in the government of President Karimov. They don't want to go open. They yes, it can, it can be. Us. Perhaps it's a little difficult for them to go back. Um, now, a, a, a little bit later than that, um, I, I noticed that you had been uh, doing a speech at the Frontline Club with uh, Craig Murray. And for people that might, I think one of the, this book, the uh, you can see a fairly well-thumbed copy of um, Murder in Samarkand, which um, that was our British ambassador, as I remember it, writing about all kinds of what sounded almost unbelievable um, uh, uh, human rights problems and uh, some quite gruesome things. Now, uh, I think at the time that that came out, there was a, almost a disbelief that that was really happening. And but you, 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 I think you either know or have at least spoken with Craig Murray. Uh, how how much of that is a fair representation of how things were in in, in the sort of this is about fifteen years ago, admittedly. I think he was one of the very few honest ambassadors who actually broke the story, who actually told the truth, which is not his diplomatic duty, of course, mm. because we know how diplomacy works. <laughs> yes. But there is there was always uh, <clears throat> I understood the, the battle between a diplomat and somebody who is going to be standing and watching what's happening, being a diplomat and covering and uh, somebody who is actually willing to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. What's happening in Uzbekistan was unbelievable. Was cooperating in, after two thousand one, you know the the twin towers thing, and uh, cooperating with renditions and uh, torturing all these potential suspects in potential uh, terrorism crimes. Uzbekistan was always part of it, uh, and inside Uzbekistan was happening horrific human rights abuses. And I think that the scale of these abuses we will only find out much, much later, maybe decades later, to what extent uh, President Karimov's, former President Karimov's government was willing to go to persecute people for mm. mainly for paranoia, corruption purposes, and etc. But the uh, problems they have um, created for the future of Uzbekistan are absolutely enormous. Now, of course, the, uh, perhaps the other, um, for, for, for people not familiar with the Central Asia. One other thing they may have heard about is the the disaster of the ecology, ecological problems of of the Aral Sea, which in turn, as I understand them, sort of lead back to the 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 cotton production in mainly in Uzbekistan and perhaps in Kazakhstan as well. Now, I had read that the the Aral Sea is making a slightly tentative recovery. Do do, do you have any information about that? And is is do we have any source of hope there? I'm looking for hope actually. <laughs> The hope, the hope is there. Aral Sea is divided between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. Uh, what we call the big Aral is in Uzbekistan. Uh, the small Aral is in Kazakhstan. Uh, the Kazakhstan Aral, small Aral, is recovering. Yes, there is mm. uh, fishing. Fishing is back, and you see the the, the fish and the, and the birds and everything else. Small Aral is recovering. Big Aral is dead. And will always be dead. There is no. You, th- you think there's no way back for that? Absolutely no way back, uh, because Uzbekistan is still heavily dependent on cotton production. Cotton mm. is very water oriented, orientated plant, and unless this is changed, small bigaral will never get back. 
and we have we're heading now to a bigger problem of Uzbekistan because uh, agriculture is not diverse and the government still um, hopes heavily on the cotton production um, we we still we, we're seeing the reduction of water resources and because the government not only in Uzbekistan but in, in whole Central Asia they are not that flexible to adapt to the new realities they're going to be less water they're not changing anything in agriculture sector, which is a big, big problem ahead. And now, so that brings us to a, to another twin problem that we, um, I know just this week, there have been clashes between Tajik and Kyrgyz people um, in the Bakken area, which is in the sort of Western claw of, of Kyrgyzstan, around the, around the Varukh, um uh, exclave. Now, there's, if if people really need to have a look at a map of the Fergana Valley to realise just how complicated all those borders are, um, and uh, this is something that's been left by the um, by the Soviet period. Now, I have to say, when I was travelling back in in the 1990s, what was great about Central Asia? It was early 1990s, and they hadn't really yet. Um, put any borders in place. So I remember I, I once took a train um, all the way from um, Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan to Osh in Kyrgyzstan. Now, we crossed nine borders on that train. Um, but in those days, this is sort of 94, I think it was, that was fine because the borders hadn't solidified. But then I think it was maybe a couple of years after that, um, what had been almost nominal borders, because they're so extraordinary extraordinarily complex were then were then sort of solidified they, they put up barbed wire fences and and maybe so ditches and, and guard posts so now what what i gather is that things may be starting to go the other way and slightly relaxing um but there's still those are very heavy borders so what we have i i gather are complex borders difficulty to cross and then added to that the problem that it's not only people crossing borders, but the way that the water crosses borders. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but... <laughs> no, to... no, Mark, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the thing about the borders, I mean, just look at Central Asia as a former colony. We've been Russian's colony, empire of Russian colony, and Russian or whatever Soviet people, they divided the borders, just like uh, British did in mm. Africa, in Middle East, in Asia. Mm. That's how it's done. We never had any borders. You know, we had some entities, but the borders, people came, decided to draw the borders. And if you look at Central Asia borders, they're bizarre. The yes. border with Uzbekistan's got one line and then some weird shape. And then, oh my God, live along Fergana Valley, the most complicated part between three countries, mm. uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, it's extremely complex. So thanks to Russian colonialists, we have these borders. Now we have to leave with them after the form of after Soviet Union collapsed. Now, what, would, what do we do? Um, forget about the borders. They can be, uh, demarked demarcation delimitation all these nice fancy words we have one common problem in the region the water the water mm. comes from the mountainous areas kyrgyzstan tajikistan goes all the way up to central asia to the uzbekistan and turkmenistan we all feed from one water source pretty much the region is entirely mostly agricultural we need water however the climate change they're going to be less water, less and less water. And we see that the the 
disappearance of the big RLC is, was one of the main things which happened in last century to say to us, hey, you know, there's going to be less water. Mm. Nobody paid attention. You know, now what we see between uh, the, the, the skirmish, that's a horrible thing which happened between the Tajiks and Kyrgyz and Batken area, is, was about the water because one side is accusing other side of, of using water more than they are entitled to. And that happened in over 100 people injured and 13 deaths and what we know. And a lot of people being displaced. And I'm telling, this is just the beginning. They're going to be water wars. Unless there's understanding between all five countries of the region that we have to sit down and decide how we distribute the water resources because we cannot look into former Soviet uh, agreements where draw, uh, which were drawn during the Soviet times. There was a different situation. Sit down, look uh, to the truth in the eye and say, okay, this is not going to be enough. We have to totally redesign our agricultural schemes, irrigation schemes, and see what we can do together. Otherwise, we're just going to kill each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, uh, as I say, what we're always looking for is hope. And one one sign of hope was that this week, I know that the um, the regional heads of the three main concerned um, uh, regions in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan were at least meeting. But but I guess what we hope, what we need really is is that the at, the, at a country wide level that there is a lot more cooperation. And we don't want any meetings. There is nothing coming out of the meetings. Oh, I see. Tajikistan at the moment is a chairman of organization for the of security council within the CIS, former Soviet Union countries. And what happens? They're bringing heavy artillery to the border dispute. Come on, you know, this is mm. an act of war in, in our war reporter. In any other circumstances. This is an act of war. You do not bring the artillery and armored vehicles to sort out the border, I mean, the issue with the, some water resource. That doesn't happen. This is wrong. So there are no mechanisms to work it out. And my worry is that if this, you cannot just put this issue under the carpet like we always do in Central Asia. You know, we all have a lot of ethnic issues, but ethnic issues is one thing fighting for a vital resource for living is another thing so mm. i do not believe in any sort of meetings because these countries are governed by pretty much either dictators or autocrats there's no democracy there's no democracy in any country of the region so how do you solve this problem there is no independent voice. There is everyone is afraid of expressing the opinion. Like today, I was speaking to a friend of mine from Kyrgyzstan. I was like, look, buddy, we, I mean, not young generation already, middle age generation, we have to step in and say initiative group just to talk about the bloody water. Hmm. Or let's talk about it later. Later when? There was a big disaster now in the region happening, which affects all of us. Because no matter how you look at it, Mark, in Central Asia, we're one family. You know, even Tajikistan, though not part of the Turkic tribe, you know, they're still part of us. We've always been together. This is our common problem. Back in history, people were resolving this problem by talking together, understanding. 
So why now we have to pretend this is my country, this is my country? No, this is our land. We have to talk about how we live on it. They don't get it, especially when you have a dictatorship in Tajikistan, for my God, which robbing the country for so many years. So, well... Um, we, I'm sorry, I'm not very much hope person, right? Well, I, I, I'm destroying I, I, the whole concept. I, well, it's, uh, this slightly reminds me of, 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 a, of an interview I heard on the press when, when Misha Glenny was telling us two years before the Yugoslav contact, uh, conflict, you better listen now. And, well, if, if nothing else, let's get this message out. This, this obviously is an extraordinarily important thing. Let's hope that we can uh, can get this message across. Um, uh, with the last couple of minutes, if if, if you were able to be in a position of power which sadly you're not but if you, what what would you suggest would be the first steps that um well who and anyone should take to address this issue should we should we be bringing this up in other countries should there be some grassroots pressure groups i mean or is that even possible or, no what, in terms what, of what if we're talking about water it's very hmm. simple you bring the international panel of um, experts will sit down and think how we can reconstruct the whole region. It should be whole regional thing. It cannot be just one country taking charge. We have to sit down together and look at the individual economies of each countries, figure out how we do it. You know, because it's about water. We don't only use it for agriculture, we use it for, for everything. But we need to survive. So in if if anyone in Uzbekistan would have any more brain, they would stop doing agriculture and build hydroelectro stations you need to think how redesign the economy step by step for god's sake you know you, you have money to bring this brains from all over the world even local brains think, think down and think about it and suggest ways to redesign the agriculture and irrigation to make it habitable for all of us you know unfortunately people still think in the 20th century i mean we have dinosaurs in power and this is bad we need new blood coming in unfortunately what we get as a result of the election if either in other autocrats or people who are brought to power because of drugs money or people who are there in power just because they're there you know enough we're gonna die if things go like this well, Shahid, I, I, I accept that we're not going to be able to give that a, too much of a positive twist, but it's a very important message. And um, uh, for I would just like to finish it off just by saying, despite all that, I... There's always hope, okay? <laughs> there's always hope. And also, um, just in terms of a, of a place to be, we, we possibly have left those who've never been to Central Asia um, seeing a lot of the negatives, but... I mean, I've travelled a great deal in in all of the countries we're talking about. Um, as as a place to travel, I mean, uh, each of the countries has its own marvelous things to see and to do. And and yes, it's tragic that all this is happening. But I do want to under underline that the the the, the normal people ha have a fabulous culture, amazing things. So I I, I just I, I I hate to go. Oh, out can I add up something? The only reason I'm so passionate because I love the region. Even yeah. though I'm just originally from Uzbekistan, I love the region. It's a beautiful mm. part of the world and people are so hospitable and nice. And of course, it's great to visit. 
Yeah, it's about and, the future I'm concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. And it, um, but but you're quite right. We we can't and 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 I mustn't be guilty of doing what you say of like of pushing under the carpet this very important issue. So I just like to thank you so much, uh, Shahida. That's been absolutely um, mind blowing and 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 a little worrying. But but we we let's get that out there. And um, so I'd like to say thank you so much. And um, you've been listening to the Caspian podcast with me, Mark Elliott, and Shahida, whose second name I still can't. Pronounce. Um, <laughs> could you do it for That's me? That's okay. <laughs> to Laganova. To Laganova. Thank you very much, Shahida. And oh, I'm looking forward to to see you hopefully on another podcast um, later on in the year. Thanks Thank so much. You. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.